Greetings and welcome. Uh, we are excited and thankful that uh, you would take time out of your day to watch the message that we have prepared for you, whether it be morning, afternoon, or evening. We are thankful that you would take time for this today. Uh, we want to acknowledge uh, this is strange times. We are in a crisis, and, and I recognize that there's a, there's a disconnect between me on your screen and you where you are. Uh, but by way of encouragement, um, God in the Bible makes a bold claim by saying that he is everywhere at once. The term is omnipresent. So wherever you are right now watching this, know that God is with you. And my hope is that during our message this morning or this afternoon or this evening, uh, that you would lean into that and that you would trust that, that you would look for the living God where you are. Pray with me. Father God, today, uh, we give our time to you. I pray that for those that are watching, that you would take away distractions right now, that the kids would be calm, um, that our, our minds would be awake, that our phones would be put aside, that we would take this time to pause and hear from you. Enliven our faith, and may we live in a distinct manner following after you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, by way of introduction, I would love to tell um, Amy Wilson Carmichael's story. Just a quick summary. Uh, she was a missionary in India. And this is what it says. Uh, Amy Wilson Carmichael was born in 1867. She grew up in a Christian family in Ireland. And she was born uh, with brown eyes, although as a child, Amy wished always that she had blue eyes. She was one of eight children when she was... Uh, when she was 18, her father passed away. And alongside of that, growing up, she suffered from neuralgia, which is a disease uh, that affects the nerves of the body. When she was 20 years old, she heard a message from Hudson Taylor, who is uh, a famous missionary in China. And God used this message to lead Amy into the mission field. And as she went out, she went to multiple locations. She went to uh, China, she went to Japan. And every time that she would go out to these locations, she would get very ill and have to come back home to Ireland almost immediately. And it wasn't until she went to Sri Lanka, where she also got ill there, that she decided not to go back to Ireland, but to go to India to recover. And when she recovered, she stayed in India. And while she was there, Amy noticed young girls in need of help and in need of Jesus. She saw these girls are often hurt and treated badly. These girls were slaves in Hindu temples. Many of the young girls referred to her as Amai, which means mother. She had a very personal relationship with these young girls. And as she continued to help these slave girls, what she would do is she would put her own life at risk by going into these Hindu temples. She would disguise herself as a woman from India. She would wear the, 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 the normal clothes that Indian women wore. And then she would also take coffee and she would stain her skin brown. And it was at that point in time that she realized that the eye color that she had was actually perfect for where God had her. Because had she had blue eyes, which is very uncommon in India, it would have been a dead giveaway. She was able to blend in to actually help and love these young girls. In the last 19 years of her life, she spent it bedridden because of a back injury. And during that time, she even used it to minister to those that came to her and helped work with her and nurses and doctors and things like that. But she wrote 16 books and rewrote old books while she was there. Uh, one of the books she wrote is simply titled, If. 
And this is a collection of devotional thoughts that end with the same phrase each time. It says this, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Here's a sample from that. She says this, if I ask to be delivered from a trial rather than for deliverance out of it to the praise of his glory, if I forget that the way of the cross leads to the cross and not a bank of flowers, if I regulate my life on these lines or even unconsciously my thinking so that I am surprised when the way is rough and think it strange, even though the word is, think it not strange, count it all joy, then I know nothing of Calvary love. You see, we hear these stories of missionaries who are willing to give it all for God and for his glory and for people knowing God and his love. And we're inspired. We, I think deep down inside of us, each one of us want to live a life of purpose where we're willing to actually suffer for something good like this. But yet a lot of us are caught in a tension. I think especially in America, we're caught in this tension where we have trouble uh, having the idea of, of suffering and trials and God's blessing coexisting. And I, and I wonder when is it that we can actually rid the thought that God's blessing and trials cannot coexist? Last week, as we began the book of James, we found out that as God's created people, that our true faith is revealed in circumstances like shame, poverty, hunger, thirst, and other such afflictions. It's actually in these moments of trial and pressure of life that our true faith is revealed. What it is that we hold on to in these moments, where we find our comfort and our confidence is revealed during these moments, when it is actually, the fact is by those trials that God intends to bring us to a complete maturity. That if we can see through our trials to a wise and generous God, then we can not only bear the hardships, but we can count it all joy. As we move forward today, James the pastor uh, will speak to his audience, but also to us and say that close on the heels of trials are temptations to sin. And this, this temptation to sin in the midst of trials is the very pitfall of people, including Christians. We are, we are deceived in these moments into believing that God may not actually be good and therefore he cannot be trusted. We get to this point that we end up giving in to temptation for the sake of relief from our trials. And then we find ourselves down the road at a bad place where we end up placing the blame on God himself for where we are. During this time, we'll look at the truth that says, deception of who God is and who we are leads to death. And contrary to that, knowing who God is and who we are can lead to life. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to James chapter one. We're gonna look at verses nine through 11 first. And this is what it says. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. One of the realities of, of true Christian faith is this, is that it starts with the disposition of humility. 
that we as, as Christians and followers of Christ, we, we have a countercultural lifestyle. In fact, another way to say it would be that we live distinctive in this world. We have a counterworldly lifestyle that we have. And we start with this disposition of humility, one in which no external reality, whether it be things that we have or have not, do not define who we are. Our true identity is found in what Jesus Christ has given us. That's where we start. For the lowly and the, and, the, and the poor in this world, you have been brought to an exalted status in Jesus Christ. One in which you are now royalty and your inheritance, being a part of this royal family, your inheritance comes from the owner who owns everything that's ever existed. We are very rich in what Christ has given us. And for those who are rich in the world, no matter how much reputation and credit that we have, we recognize that there is a poverty deep within our souls that only Jesus Christ himself can pay for. So we boast in this lowly seat. We say, look, all this wealth, it compares not to what I have received in Christ. And I say that I have needed much. Look at my humiliation before God by my sin. I have a huge debt. The rich boasts in what Christ has given See, both the rich and the poor must know their true position before having a true faith in this life. It takes a humble boldness to declare, if I have nothing, but I have you, O God, then I have everything. And if I have everything, but I do not have you, O God, then I have nothing. It takes humility to admit that. You see, wealth is a, is a wonderful gift from God. Finance is a wonderful gift from God, but yet it is a terrible savior. Our wealth, things we've accumulated in this world, they will perish, it says. They will go away. And those that pursue those things for gain will perish with them. It's from this position of humility that we're able to see trials and hardships and, and, and the testing of our faith with different eyes. We can recognize how much we've been given and how much we will be given. And we're able to stand firm, loving God through it all. And moving forward, James says in, in verse 12, he says this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You see, it is this victory that's held in our view. It's, it's the victory, the crown of life ahead of us that actually helps us move moment by moment, waiting for the coming of our Lord. It's in those hard moments that we see the crown of life ahead of it. We see through it to the victory that helps us press on in these moments. In fact, this day of victory through pain is similar to what James had just mentioned in the previous eight verses. He says, true faith must be willing to go through trial to see the reward. True faith must be willing to go through death to see life. We as Christians and followers of Christ must be willing to go to the grave before we see the resurrection. And I know many of us long for the resurrection, but are we willing to go to the cross before we get there? This is the life of true faith and the hope of all who love God, the crown of life. You see, God can use even the worst of this life to bring about perfection. In fact, he intends to. Blessed are those who remain steadfast under trial. 
You see, truly knowing our status as believers, what we have in Christ, how much we've been given isn't, is something we should hold on to firmly as it holds on to us. It can never be shaken who you are in Jesus Christ who was fully paid and fully purchased on the cross and resurrection. And you are now a child of God. Hold on to that dearly, but you must not forget who you were. You must know your old self as well. And James, he does well to tell us some truths about ourselves. James helps us see that we do still have a sinful side, even as followers of Christ. You see, we are, in all, we are in an already, but not yet. We are in a fallen world still. You see, certainly we have been given much in Christ. That's because much is needed. Knowing yourself is paramount in understanding how we live, how we act, how we speak, how we think. John Calvin has this quote where he says, what is true of the body is also true of the soul. It's in these critical moments of, of temptation and trial that our true faith is revealed. You can imagine a bag of tea dropped into boiling hot water. What is inside of that bag is revealed in those hot and, and high intense moments. It, you can taste and you can see and you can smell exactly what's going on. So it is with our faith and our souls. In these hard moments, we recognize what exactly is going on inside of us and where our true faith is. In, in verse 13 through 15, this is what it says. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. One of the, one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it acknowledges reality. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't create this sort of like fable or fantasy of what we would hope it would be like. It actually describes day-to-day -day life and what we actually go through. And James does that here. He says, when you are tempted, dear person, expect temptation to come. This includes everyone. Everyone is tempted, not just these weak Christians. Every person is tempted. This is a normal part of life. James is stating here to us that temptation is a constant companion from the cradle to the grave. And, and with that, we don't need to be surprised when temptation arises. We shouldn't be surprised for it. We actually just need to understand it. I know for me, as I, as I grew up, I decided it would be, um, it was my choice to begin to dabble on the buffet of what the world had to offer. Many different sins that I tried, things that God would call evil, I decided to dabble in and try. When I actually became a follower of Christ, I remember having this foolish thought thinking like, because I've tried so much, I'll have a, a wider perspective on how to handle life. I'll have a good, unique view of how to handle and navigate this world. Um, one thing I did not anticipate because it did give me a perspective. One thing I did not anticipate was the landmines of temptation and sin that were ahead of me because I had tried so many different things. It seemed there were landmines everywhere of temptation. I was not ready for it. And sure enough, I was injured by many of these choices as I was following Christ. Maybe it's the same for you as well. So why would James need to clarify this is a question you might ask. Why would he have to clarify where temptation and evil come from? 
Well, logic lends itself, I think, this way. So, so we believe in, in a God who is in control of everything. He's sovereign. We use that word. His sovereign hand holds all things together. And this sovereign God allows trials to come in. And these trials, they, they bring up temptations. And these temptations cause me to sin. So the logic would say, well, God's in control of everything. He caused me to sin. And, and I think it's our natural reflex to, to play the victim. We, we like to blame cast. In fact, much like the Jews James is writing to, we, we find it easy to blame God for the temptations we experience. It, it's actually the same old excuse we've used since the garden. It's this wife that you gave me that caused me to sin. It's the serpent that caused me to sin. Blaming God for sin. It might sound like a strange thing for you. You might think to yourself, like, I have never once blamed God for the choices that I've made. I've owned up to every single choice that I've made, both righteous and unrighteous. But follow with me and, and think of it perhaps in, in this way. Blaming God for sin sounds more like, God, you're, you're not good enough. So I'm going to look to this. God, you're not quick enough. So I'm going to go ahead and do this. God, you're not as right as blank. So I'm gonna follow them. Or maybe we see his good gifts as something more appealing than God himself, than the giver. So you look at something like sex. We say, God, maybe if you hadn't made sex so wonderful, then I wouldn't be tempted to do it before marriage. This is on you, God. Or maybe something like money and power and security. It's like, well, maybe if I didn't have to keep my family secure, God, then I wouldn't have stepped on my neighbor's neck to get that raise, God. This one's on you. What else was I supposed to do? James refutes this idea. He's saying God is, he, God is untemptable to sin. Sin holds absolutely no attraction to God whatsoever. What would God have to gain from our sin? So where does this evil come from? If God doesn't bring about this evil, then, then where does this come from? And we've seen that, that James answers this question. If you go back to, to verse 14, I think it is 13 through 15, it says this, it says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Our own desire is what causes us to bring about this evil. The Bible is offensive. This is, this is uncomfortable for us to hear. We don't like the thought of hearing that this is something from inside of us, that's, that's something that's natural to us. It's offensive. And as much as we would like to blame others, that we would like to blame our parents, our, our peers, our circumstances, our genes, or maybe even God himself, it's actually from within us that this evil and this sin comes about. You see, it's not the school test fault that the student fails. It's the student who didn't study or pay attention in class. The, the test is innocent in this. It just revealed what was actually there. You see, my circumstances may be the occasion for my sin, but it is not the cause of it. And here's another thing. Temptation wouldn't be tempting for me if I were pure and not fallen. The language is clear. It's just like fishing. Our desires cast the line and we wait for that tempting nibble and then we sink the hook. And as soon as we feel it, what do we do? We just go for it. 
Our desire lures, it coaxes, it hunts, it drags us to death. And when our lustful desire gives into temptation, that's when sin is conceived. You see, like when we allow trials to be utterly wrong, we fall quickly into self-pity. And this is a form of, of selfish pride where we can only focus on, on the self. And we say, God, don't you see me as I see me, as, as a victim here? Why don't you get up and help me and make my life easy? Why don't you bring about physical comfort? Because your blessing doesn't come this way. Your blessing does not come to me this way. We think there's no way God would bless this way. When in fact, that is just, that's deception. That's being deceived. You wanna talk about a false faith. This is, this is why when we expect the blessing to only come in comforts, that God seems silent, distant, and unloving. And so when we cry out for God to take away this trial and he continues the trial on so he can grow us and mature us to a true faith and we only want comfort, we succumb to idols. And I don't know what it is. It's probably not a golden calf of an idol, but it looks something maybe like comfort and, and addiction and, and drunkenness, or, or maybe it's, it's money and, and security and things like that. It just seems to be a more believable and trustworthy good than God at the moment. When God is only God in plenty, then he is absent and poverty. We must have a widened view of our God. He can handle the plenty and the poverty. Faith perfecting trials come and close on its heels is temptation. And in that our true faith is shown. We embrace being a victim only. We do not ready ourselves for temptation that will most certainly come. It's like crossing a busy street, looking at your phone and being surprised that you were hit by a car we don't get a good grip on who we are and who God is and understanding our desires, then we will walk blindly into life and find ourselves dead much sooner than happening upon life. And, and sin, it's, it's so deceptive, it's, it's deceitful, and it has this idea that initially it feels harmless. What, who is this gonna harm? It's just me, I'm not bothering anybody else. This is just between me and this sin. It feels harmless at first. We feel like, yeah, this is on my side. This is helping me right now. It's, it's pleasant, it's warm, it's comforting. But sadly, that's not where it stays. You see, sin grows up, it says in James. And it's actually our own child that kills us. There's something pretty wonderful right now that my toddler, I can, when she throws a fit and fights with her siblings, that I can physically remove her from the situation to, to dissolve the situation. You see, sin will mostly obey you when it's young, but as it gets older, it's, it's much harder to control and to hide. When sin is full grown, it kills you. In fact, James uses the same language here as he used in previous verses about perfection and maturity. Intentionally, he does this to catch our attention. The redundancy is purposeful. He's saying this, you'll either be perfected in life or you'll be perfected in death. Don't be deceived on who you are and most of all, who God is. In hard times, we wanna blame God and blame others and push him away saying, this is his fault and begin to excuse ourselves. If we forget who we are, then we most definitely are forgetting who God is. And James, what a good pastor he is. James does a great job to draw our attention off of ourselves and onto God. 
And this is what he says. He answers the question, if God doesn't give us temptations, what does God give us? And in verses 17 and 18, this is what it says. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we shouldn't be a kind of, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see, God is working in the opposite direction of death. God always works towards life. That's just who he is. It's the idea of, of what, what evil meant for bad, God intends for good. God does not bring trials to you to bring you down, but to perfect you. He does not do things to make you less, but actually to make you more. He does not do things to bring your faith to a false place, but to a, a true place. He has taken us through things to take the dependency off of ourselves and put that dependency on God who can actually bless and actually give a crown of life. This is our good and generous God. That's who he is. God is consistently good and allows all things to deepen our hunger for him and for heaven is our home. So the aches and the pains that we feel in trials are just longings to be at home with our God in heaven. If we don't see it this way, then we'll continue to rely on ourselves until that other perfecting process is complete. If we do not believe God is good, then we will never trust him to the point of obedience this is why we every Sunday practice saying out loud, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Because if we do not, we can be deceived and thinking the opposite. We have to hammer it into our foreheads. Father of heavenly lights, James calls him. God is our creator and our sustainer. He scattered the lights across the sky and yet he leans down to us in Jesus to care for each and every single one of us. Oh, he gives great gifts. The one who made the cosmos is with you on your couch. The one who is lofty wants to know you personally. This is our God. He is dependable. He doesn't change. Even though he made lights that move constantly, you can imagine sitting in a field in the, in, in the summer day, sun beating down and you find a tree and you get underneath of that tree. You have to follow the shadow to stay in that protective place because the lights move. You see, God is not like those lights. No, he is constant. And in Christ, we have found a perfect place, a perfect spot to bask and stay protected from the scorching heat and wind that will most definitely come. And we need never move. This is the best gift that he gives. He gives us new birth. James shows us a cycle of one birth where it, it starts with sin and, and, and leads to death. That's just the natural order of things. But God gives us a new birth, one where he chose to give it. There was nothing that we did that drew his attention that said, that person des deserves new birth. Oh, oh, they cleaned up a little bit. They deserve new birth. No, this is something he gave freely to us all. He's a generous God and all of it comes powerfully in the word of truth. 
death comes from listening to our desires. This comes from listening and hearing the word of God. This word of truth echoes Genesis when by his words, all was created. And then more finitely, Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh. This word of truth is powerful. So powerful is the message of Jesus that it can penetrate us. So powerful is the word of God that it can penetrate us, grip us, and make us into his people. This new life, well, it's, it's the first fruits. Much like a, a gardener with a, with a tomato plant, that, that first tomato that's ripe, you taste it. You know what the rest will be like, whether it'll be sweet or watery. So are we the first fruits of what God is up to. One where all of creation, as we know, will be renewed. No more will we begin to give in to temptation. No more will evil or sin exist. We are a glimpse of the kingdom to come now. And dear believer, when you lean into that, when you trust that God is good and you choose him over sinful temptation, you are bringing heaven on earth. No gift is more precious than this one. And it is this truth that we must keep at the forefront of our minds, especially during trials. So you may ask, how, how do I live this out? How do I put this to action? How do I take this, this word of God and, and have true faith in it and live in obedience? Well, whether you are a Christian or you're not a Christian watching this, the first step is the same. You start with humility. You start with repentance, or you turn from holding on to, to what you think is, is good in this world and letting go of it and turning to God himself and receiving his gift of new life and trusting in that goodness. For those that wanna to come to Christ today, receive that new birth freely. For Christians that have walked this for a while, let go of what you think is better in God and trust in his goodness and seek his forgiveness for that. And step two, ready yourself that you may know where the landmines of temptation are. Walk this walk following Jesus, but know exactly where those landmines are so that you may not be perfected into death, but actually be perfected into life. And lastly, when you pray and you cry out to the Lord God, instead of crying out that it's not fair that I go through this, maybe try saying, thank you, God that even this, this hard moment is in your control. You must have something better and more perfect. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. May we not just hear this word, but may we live by faith obediently to it. In Jesus' name, amen.